to the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene podcast. My name is Kate, and today we're joined with the wonderful Dr. John Pitt. Um, I'm so excited to talk with you about all of your work, um, or some of your work. <laughs> you have much more work than what we'll be discussing today. Um, but would you mind briefly introducing yourself to our audience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you, first of all, for inviting me. And, uh, you know, I, this has been such a, a great podcast series. It's It's been a pleasure to listen to all the different episodes. So I feel very um, honored to, to be included. Um, so I am currently an assistant professor at the University of California in Irvine. Um, so I'm a teacher, a researcher, and a translator. Um, and I, I work within um, an area studies department here at, at UCI, so the East Asian Studies Department. And my my research focuses mostly on Japan. So the way I kind of think about my work uh, is I, I have one foot in the Japanese studies side of things, and then one foot in the plant humanities, critical plant studies, however you want to call it. Um, so I got my PhD uh, at UC Berkeley, uh, again, in, a, in an area studies department, um, I really focused on Japanese literature. Uh, so, you know, I'm trained primarily in literary studies and media studies. Um, and so the plant studies side of things came a little bit later uh, as I was working on the dissertation. Um, but, you know, because my training really is in literature, media, I focus primarily on, on texts, right, whether they're written or, or filmic. Um, but, you know, I, I, the, the position I have at UCI and the way that I think about my work now is within the broader context of environmental humanities, right? And so environmental humanities, uh, is a great sort of framework to push beyond these very conventional, in some cases, very confining boundaries of the area studies paradigm, right? These, these, um, these departments and this this sort of mode of scholarship that really privileges the nation state uh, as this object of study that, you know, can be somewhat limiting sometimes. And, and plants, uh, I think in general, and definitely within my own work, um, became a way to, to think differently about uh, Japan, about the study of Japan, you know, including culture, history, questions of environment, geography, right? All, all kinds of different things that you can kind of bring together, break out of these, uh, again, somewhat confining um, ways of thinking about uh, the nation state. Plants allow us to do that. So, um, you know, talking a little bit more specifically, I guess, I'm, I'm interested in texts, right? So, so writers, filmmakers, um, in some case, visual artists. I'm really interested in how all of these different thinkers um, think about plant life, understood, understand plant life, right? So plants uh, really become this interesting sort of intersection of, of art, science, spirituality, right? All of these different ways of knowing plant life. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in what I call phytomorphism. Um, it's not a term I came up with, but it's one that I use uh, uh, pretty often in my work, right? So anthropomorphism is a term that I think a lot of us have to to grapple with, uh, especially those of us working within literature and, and and representations of plant life, right? In the plant humanities, um, there's there's so many uh, quick judgments to the notion of anthropomorphism, 
right? That really aren't all we looking at in these interesting texts about plants ascribing human values, human characteristics to plant life. And, you know, there are certain thinkers who have um, sort of pushed us to think, well, maybe anthropomorphism isn't such a bad thing in some cases. Um, the way I'd like to think about it is it's not a one-way street, right? So the notion of anthropomorphism, if you think of it, you know, in kind of a metaphorical way, it creates this bridge between the human and the plant. But the directionality of that bridge can go the other way, right? And so, so this is really um, the thing that I feel like drives my work a lot. I'm looking at those moments where not so much cases of anthropomorphism are um, important, but the other way around, right? How do humans ascribe plant-like characteristics to the human, right? How do they think about the human being as more plant-like? Um, this is sort of the the, the central concern, I think, in, in a lot of my research, right? It takes different forms, but that that's something that I really focus on. Um, and I, I, I know I shared a couple uh, articles and a um, in a book chapter with you. Uh, and I think, you know, you can kind of see how how that plays out in some of my research. My larger book project um, is very much about this, right? So the book project, uh, this is my, my, my first um, book manuscript that I am working to complete. It's based on my dissertation. And it, it brings together this sort of strange group of, of of Japanese writers and filmmakers, scientists, pseudoscientists. Um, it's sort of an odd array of thinkers from the 1930s all the way to the present um, that are responding to different moments of crisis in Japanese history by thinking, well, okay, what would it be like if we sort of dealt with these moments of crisis by trying to be more like plants, right? And of course, that takes different different hues, right? In these different historical moments, but but that that impulse uh, is what ties all of these thinkers together. And so, you know, the notion of subjectivity is really important to this work. Um, what 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 can we say about human subjectivity when it tries to be more like a plant, right? So this is a kind of botanical subjectivity that I'm chasing throughout. And uh, yeah, so so these are kind of some of the questions that I'm looking at. Um, there's a, a really interesting tension that I, I kind of trace throughout the book. And I think it's in um, some of the pieces I shared with you as well, where plants have this sort of dual um, nature in, in the works I look at. So on the one hand, right, colonial botany was really important to the Japanese empire. Right. So plants as this kind of agent within um, or, or, or object, right, depending how we look at it. Um, but plants were certainly used to to further colonialism in the Japanese context. But at the same time, right, also offered a way for um, thinkers, writers, artists to sort of resist empire at the same time. Right. Uh, allowed for a, a, a different way to think about. Um, the human and cooperation, right? And so, so that's really fascinating to me. That tension, right? How how plants can be both sort of, um, you know, used to colonial ends, but also sort of inspiration for resistance to to those efforts. Um, so that's something else I kind of look at throughout my work. I have a quick follow up question. To that. Yes, of course, of course. 
So I studied abroad in Hokkaido. Oh, great. Yeah. As an undergrad. And so I well remember Mari Mokuri. Um, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The one of the um, mascots, I guess. Of, yeah area um there may be pictures of me online somewhere like in otaru <laughs> posing <laughs> it's like this carb or not cardboard but uh, a wooden sign that was really popular i think for students to put your head there and it's like you're right next to mari mokuri um mm-hmm. but could you briefly explain because i think that the 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 story of mari mo mm-hmm. is correct marimo yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the algae is just such a brilliant example of many of the things you were talking about like pushing against the the nation state narrative and working with some of these kind of like occupying colonial forces and indigenous resistance within the context of japan so could you talk a little bit more about marimo yeah absolutely um so this this work is uh, something that I, I put together for this really cool um, collected volume that's coming out, I believe, later this year, if not early next year, um, through Brill's Critical Plant Studies series, uh, which is edited by Michael Marder. And this is um, a volume that's all about algae, right? So it, it's kind of thinking about what what place does algae have within the plant humanities, the critical, you know, plant studies paradigm, um, especially because algae are not really plants, right? So, so there's again already that interesting tension there. Um, but my contribution to this volume is about Marimo, as you mentioned, and listeners um, might know Marimo if you if you have aquariums at home, <laughs> if you've been to Petco or PetSmart or one of these places, you'll often find uh, among the fish these things that often get called moss balls in English, right? Um, they're not moss. They they kind of resemble moss. Um, they are spherical, so so the ball part is correct. Uh, but Agagrapilla linnaei is the, the scientific name. And these are, um, it's an alga, right? So, so it's these individual filaments uh, of algae that come together under certain circumstances to form these spherical balls, right? And Lake Akan, which is uh, on the island of Hokkaido, for listeners who might not be as familiar with Japanese geography, we're talking about uh, Japan's northernmost main island, um, Hokkaido. Uh, people know Sapporo, perhaps, right? So Sapporo is, is kind of the major city on the island of Hokkaido. But there's this region um, called Lake Akan, and this lake is, is really famous for uh, exceptionally large marimo. Um, and so the, the the chapter that I, I've contributed to this volume looks at how this alga, right? Um, which you know we don't think of algae as ever being all that charismatic, but but somehow Marimo has become very popular, right? Uh, a souvenir. Um, they're sold as pets, right? Even again, listeners can next time you're in a, a pet store, look in the, your look in the aquarium section, you'll you'll probably find some. Um, and you mentioned, uh, you know, there's there is this mascot, right? That's a that's a Marimo, um, again, a, an algae mascot, right? It's just kind of a weird thing. So I was really curious about, okay, what is the situation here? Um, and 
it's a really fascinating, complex story about how um, you know this 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 marimo, this algae, this alga, has become as famous as it has, and a lot of this has to do with. Uh, the very contentious history of settler colonialism uh, on the island of Hokkaido, right? So Lake Akan, this uh, this lake, beautiful place, right, that uh, these Marimo are found, is also home to the Akanko Ainu Kotan. And again, for listeners who might be unfamiliar, um, the Ainu are the indigenous population of Hokkaido. And uh, the Ainu, the Akanko Ainu Kotan is uh, an Ainu sort of community around the lake. Um, it's become, you know, a, a tourist destination uh, as well as a site for cultural preservation um, and really innovation as well. There's this absolutely amazing music festival uh, that happens, I believe, in February every year uh, near the... Uh, lake, and you can watch the performances on on YouTube. Um, just just phenomenal, uh, uh, you know, uh, performances of 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 Ainu music and collaborating with with Japanese um, contemporary musicians. It's it's a really really cool event. But Marimo has been um, a really interesting piece of the sort of history of tourism to this region, right? So to talk about settler colonialism in, on Hokkaido, um, you know, there, there's the Ainu population, uh, the original inhabitants of the island. Um, but, you know, this was a, a, a community of people who were not recognized as indigenous by the Japanese government until 2008. So it's, it's a very recently that the Japanese government have acknowledged um, the indigeneity of, of the Ainu. Um, instead, you know, there is this long history of settler colonialism. The, the Ainu were subjected and, and really continued to be subjected in many cases to assimil assimilationist policies, cultural erasure. Um, and Marimo is a part of the story, right? So if you look up Marimo online and you find, you know, about its discovery, right, quote unquote, its discovery, um, you'll be drawn to this colonial botanist, this Japanese colonial botanist, Kawakami Takia. You know, and, and so he first wrote of Marimo in 1898, right? So this is the discovery of Marimo, which, of course, privileges a very certain history, right? And erases another. Um, but within a few decades, right, from 1898 in the 1920s, uh, Marimo in Lake Akan would be designated a natural monument, and this was a governmental policy from the Japanese government that looked to protect the Marimo, um, you know, because they had been uh, somewhat endangered due to, to poaching, right? So there is this conservation effort to protect Marimo. This sort of gets um, the, the, the alga on people's radar. And then there's another side of the story, which is kind of the more literary side, which is where my, my interest really peaked with this. So there is this very famous story, a tale um, that has long been ascribed to Ainu folklore. And this is a story about these two star-crossed uh, young Ainu lovers who are kept apart and eventually um, jump into the lake, killing themselves, and they become a, a Marimo. And it's very well-known, famous story. 
And so this story um, was often used to promote tourism to the lake, um, very closely associated with, with the Ainu population around Lake Akan. Problem is, it's not really an Ainu story at all, right? So this is a story that was written um, by a non-Ainu Japanese writer and basically falsely ascribed to Ainu folklore. And so part of what I'm doing in this chapter is tracing, okay, so we have this, um, this alga, this marimo that has been sort of from the outside imposed upon Ainu culture and, and said to be uh, part of Ainu folklore. It never, you know, this is not really the case. Um, but the, the Ainu community around Lake Akan over the years have sort of embraced the story, right? And used it as a way to promote tourism, to further uh, protect the lake and the and the Marimo within it. Uh, in the 1950s, there was a group of activists who actually started a Marimo festival. Um, and so that's a yearly event that, that people can visit. And so it's this, yeah, this really fascinating, again, that, that, that tension where uh, settlers, you know, to the region sort of felt justified in um, making up folklore and calling it Ainu when it wasn't. But then the Ainu community sort of taking that back, right, and, and reclaiming it and using it to further conserve um, the lake itself, the alga, but also Ainu culture, right? The, the Ainu um, Marimo Festival is, is really a cultural event. Um, and just for, for listeners who are curious, there's a, a really wonderful film on Netflix, a recent film called Ainu Moshir, uh, Ainu, A-I-N-U, and then another word, M-O-S-I-R. And this is a film that's uh, filmed and located around Lake Akan, and you can see a brief uh, clip of the Ainu, or sorry, of the Marimo Festival uh, in that film. So, um yeah, I don't know if I hit all the points there, but but that kind of gives you a sense of what this chapter is about and 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 how, once again, turning our attention to to plant life, algae, um, you know, allows us to kind of unpack these really, really complex histories. Yeah. Definitely. I just found it so fascinating how this seemingly kind of just, um, I don't want to use the word passive, but like sometimes that's the view of plants that they're just kind of like there. Mm -hmm. And then humans are working all of these different meanings and things on them. Um, but you had mentioned before thinking of kind of plant, um, subjectivity or kind of envisioning what it looks like to have that type of view from the plants phytomorphism and how it's so active in so much of what humans are doing around it so yeah absolutely and and this is um you know i i want to mention a, a work that i have coming out so it's a, a translation um of a, a book called Tree Spirits, Grass Spirits. This is by a phenomenal um, contemporary writer, Hiromi Ito. 
Um, one of the things I love about Ito's work is plants are so active, <laughs> you know, in in her in her writing. Um, and I think, you know, she's somebody who's who's always thinking about that as well, right? Like, where is the agency of the plant? Where is my own agency? How how are these things overlapping? Um, you know, kind of kind of butting up against each other. You have moments in in her work in this this book um, that is coming out uh, in a couple months uh, via Night Boat Books, where we see um, Ito, who's kind of writing in a sort of semi autobiographical mode, looking out over her garden, looking at all of the the many bulbs right that a, a plant has left in the ground after it's been uprooted, and thinking to herself like wow, you know, the the sort of vitality and and the capabilities of reproduction that the plants are able to have. Like, I was so jealous of that. I could only have three children. I was so disappointed. You know, it's it, it's that sort of push and pull between, wait, is that anthropomorphism? Is that phytomorphism? Like, what's, you know, those, those terms sort of fall away at a certain point. Um, and those notions of object-object, agency, passivity, right? All of those get really complicated when we kind of turn our ourselves and our imaginations over to to um the botanical realm as i like to say yeah yeah um speaking of that translation work um i got to read a few of the sections oh, and i'm so glad really wonderful um in the introduction you mentioned and i think listeners would be interested in this since we have listeners who are from across several different disciplinary and, um, you know, occupational fields, but that they kind of appear as essays, but they aren't really essays. They're more poetic creations. Mm -hmm. They don't fit the structure of a typical poem, how we would, you know, consider poetry to be. Could you talk a bit about that format and I'm also curious if your kind of background wrestling with different views within critical plant studies and kind of creating your own view or coming, I don't know, creating your own view, but like coming to terms with your own view kind of philosophically or theoretically, mm -hmm. like what is that like when you're translating to kind of have all of this happening in the midst of like working on translating another person's work? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so as far as genre, right? Because this really is a question of genre. Um, and yeah, Ito is someone who very actively, very vocally in the, just really within the past couple of years um, has been pushing against the word essay. <laughs> Um, really doesn't think of her her works as as um, you know collections of essays. I mean, so so if anyone listening has read Ito's work before, they've probably read her primarily as as a poet, right? Um, most of what's been translated of her work into English are collections of poetry that really look more like poetry as we might understand it, right? Um, just 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 formally, the the way the the lines are are broken down, um, the notions, you know, the the kind of repetition that happens throughout, it really resembles poetry. The last uh, work of hers that was translated, um, which is the Thorn Puller, Jeffrey Engels's translation, an absolutely beautiful book. 
um, that I recommend everyone look at as well. This is a work that, again, has some some difficulty finding the right terms to express what it is in terms of genre. I've heard people call it a novel, right? Um, if you read it, especially in the Japanese, although Jeffrey's translation does a really good job of capturing the poetic qualities as well. But there are sections that just break into poetry and and reference, uh, you know, Japanese other Japanese poets and 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 kind of borrow voices from other poets. I mean, it's. It's a hybrid work. And Tree Spirits, Grass Spirits, the work that I translated, is also very much a hybrid work. Formally, you could look at it, and it does look like a collection of essays. Um, but, you know, I think there are, again, these, these kind of moments of repetition. There's a kind of internal logic to it that certainly doesn't follow the way we think of essays, you know, traditionally when we're speaking about them in English, in any case. And so this is something that I also look at in my research. This is a, a part of the, the overarching book project as well is, okay, so we have, um, you know, these, these writers, and I, I should say I do have a chapter on Ito's work in my, my book project. So she's someone who I've, I've thought a lot about. I've, I've written about her work um, in addition to translating it. But I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in botanical subjectivity at the level of content, but also at the level of form. Right. So, so how do writers try to make their works read more like plants, right? More plant-like form. How, how, how does that work? How can you do that? There's a lot of different ways, right? Um, so in some of Ito's poetry, uh, you know, she's writing about vines and the lines of po poetry feel like vines. They move around, they repeat, they overlap, right? There's, there is this viney quality to it. Something like Tree Spirits, Grass Spirits is a lot more subdued, um, but there is this kind of rhizomatic quality to it, right, where, where images, phrases, um, words will sort of pop up throughout, right? And I kind of think about it like you're looking out over a garden, right? You, you, you kind of notice uh, design elements, you notice repetitions, things surprise you, the more you sort of focus in and, you know, that constant movement between seeing the, the larger picture and then zooming in, right? So um, there is a kind of botanical form to it. Uh, this is a conversation I've had with Ito before, where I asked her, and I, I mentioned this in the introduction, like, you know, do you think of this a, a, as a collection of essays? Do you think of it as poetry? And in her wisdom, she just turned the question around on me and said, well, you're the translator. What do you think of it as? And I said, well, I, I kind of think it's philosophy. I do. I think it's 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 a work of philosophy. And and I, I really do. Um, because there's there's, there's a, a depth to it. It, it, it really, uh, if you spend time with it and you, you kind of grapple with the ideas it's putting forth, there is a philosophical undertaking there. Um, and I think that kind of gets to the second part of your question, right? Which is how to balance more the critical side of my work alongside the translating. And I think this work in particular, and it's probably why I took the time to to really uh, to to translate the whole thing to to publish it. Um, I think it has so much to offer. The plant humanities, um, and, and and I'm not just trying to say I'm such a great translator or anything like that, but right, I think there has been um, somewhat of a need 
uh, within critical plant studies, within the plant humanities to sort of expand beyond the Euro-American uh, world. Uh, and so, you know, East Asia, Japan, China, uh, Korea, right? These are places where you know, there's a little bit of work happening, but there's so much there. And so I think a work like this, for me, um, I'm, I'm just, I'm happy, right, that it's going to be out there and that that folks within this world, right, uh, can, can read it and have access to it. Um, so there's that side of it. There's the more sort of nitty gritty side of things too. And, and I, I talk about this in the uh, introduction as well, but the real challenge of this book, of, of translating this work was, what do you do with the plant names? This is a book about plant names. It's about the instability of plant names. It's about someone who um, was born and raised in Japan being obsessed with plants and and walking around with uh, field guides and learning all the different Japanese common names and scientific names for plants, who then moved to the United States, to Southern California, and had to learn a whole new series of names for plants, right? And so that's both where the poetry comes out of the text and 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 the philosophy, right? Um, how do we deal with that? That that one plant can have up to four different names. It's an interesting philosophical question. It's a very difficult translation question um, because I really have to sort of take things on a case by case basis, right? What plant name is she thinking about here? Uh, you know, what is she comparing it to? So, you know, I think having some sort of understanding philosophically, critically of what the text is trying to accomplish was really important for translating it at the same time. You know, there's there's a, a version of this work where all of the plant names were, um, you know, they could have just been all put into English common names. And that may have been an easier read for for certain readers. Um, as it stands now, there's there's a lot of transliterated Japanese names throughout which, you know, I, I I think both Ito herself and 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 myself, you know, we have some fear that readers will be a little turned off by that, but they need to be there, right? To really kind of get at what's happening in the text, you need that that tension and that sort of alienation between um, the different sort of modes of naming and knowing these plants as as they move across borders. Um, so. That's kind of a long-winded answer, but I, I could talk about this text all day. It's it's just uh, a work I'm 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 really proud of, and I'm again just so happy that it's uh, it's coming out. Nightboat uh, Books, uh, you know, are really taking a chance on this. They're not a publisher that uh, has done much translation like this, so uh, again, I, I feel really happy that they sort of saw what the text was and. Um, you know, folks that I've shared the manuscript with have have been have responded very positively, especially within the plant humanities world. So um, I feel really good about that. Definitely. Um, yeah, we'll make sure to provide a link for more information and all that information in the shows. Speaking of borders, uh, so this is a kind of roundabout way to get to the next article that you shared with me, or book chapter, um, on trees that have witnessed uh, catastrophes or experienced trauma. And 
So my work, I have one uh, part of my dissertation that's on bonsai trees and the practice mm -hmm. of bonsai. And so as I was reading this article, I thought of the famous Hiroshima tree and the National Bonsai Foundation in D.C. Mm -hmm. um, that was, I believe, gifted in the 70s to the U.S., but it wasn't until the early 2000s that they had family members from the family who raised the tree come over to the U.S. and revealed that it had been in Hiroshima and survived mm. the atomic bombing there right. by the U.S. So that's like a, an exchange of a living being that just is incredibly rich with like different types of meanings. Um, and so that's initially what I thought of. And I was wondering if, if you could talk about um, the Hibak Kuju. Hibakuju, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Hibakuju. Um, what are Hibakuju and why are they important? Sure, yeah. Um, I would love to hear more about your your work on bonsai. <laughs> uh, it's, it, that, I feel like that's an area I often get asked about quite a bit and it's not something I, I really work on or have studied. Um, so I, I might pick your brain about that at some point. Um, hibakuju, yeah, so so this is a term um, that refers to those trees in Hiroshima, Nagasaki that were exposed to um, the nuclear bombings uh, in World War II and have survived, right? And and of course, many of them um, continue to to survive and thrive, uh, you know, to this day. Um, Listeners might be more familiar with the term hibaksha, right? So hibaksha refers to to those humans, um, humans who who are survivors of of the atomic bomb. Um, and but there is this other term hibakuju or hibakujumoku, which refers specifically to to the trees, and they have become um, a really sort of again integral part of the the history of of um you know these 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 catastrophes uh Hiroshima and Nagasaki um and so this article uh which I believe actually was just published online today this morning so it's out there for folks if they want to check it out um this is in a special issue about witnessing the Anthropocene um in the theoretical humanities journal Angelaki um and so I talk about the hibakuju within the context of Hiroshima. Um, and so again, I'm somebody who feels most comfortable when I have a text <laughs> to to kind of rip off of. Uh, and so I, you know, I I I'll back up. So so there there's two pieces to this um essay. So so the hibakuju are part of it, um, looking at Hiroshima. But there's also a discussion about Chernobyl, right? And so uh, the, the kind of premise of the article is, what do we do with plants? Not what do we do, but how do we understand plants as witnesses to nuclear catastrophe? How do we make sense of testimony in this case, right? Wordless testimony. Um, and so I, I became kind of fascinated by these two different books. Um, again, texts, right? So, so one of them is a work that uh, some of the listeners will probably be familiar with. This is a, a, a work that was co-authored 
um, by Michael Martyr again, and uh, the artist, the visual artist Anais Tondur. Um, this is a work called the Chernobyl Herbarium. Beautiful short volume um, that pairs Tondur's uh, photograms of plants that were grown in the nuclear exclusion zone in Chernobyl uh, alongside these, these short sort of meditations. Again, I don't want to say essays <laughs> or chapters, but these kind of poetic pieces uh, written by Michael Martyr um, that are, you know, trying to interface between text and image to make sense of the botanical experience, right, of, of, of nuclear radiation. It's a very theoretical work. Um, I think it's been understood that way. It's definitely a, a piece of visual art at the same time, but it calls itself a guidebook. And when I saw that, I became really interested in the fact that um, there is a, a, a Japanese uh, writer, uh, Sugihara Rieko, who published an actual guidebook, right, to the different trees in Hiroshima, the, the Hibakuju, so that, you know, you can follow the maps that she provides and you can go and see all of the different trees. Um, they're all categorized, cataloged, they have plaques, you know, the city of Hiroshima has, has really... Um, tried to, you know, make them a part of the fabric of the city. And so I became really interested in how, you know, it, it, Martyr's work in sort of typical Martyr fashion is, is, again, very theoretical, very philosophical. This other book isn't on the surface that, but it does these really interesting critical moves, right? So one of the things that Sugihara does in this in this guidebook to the city of Hiroshima so that you can visit the Hibakuju is she refers to them throughout as ikishonin, right? So living witnesses. And that, that term in the Japanese, um, the nin at the end refers to the human, right? So there is this implication of personhood, right? Of, of a kind of personhood witnessing um, that that these trees embody. And so, you know, I I, I I became really fascinated in that. So so how do we understand them as witnesses? Why do both of these texts um, that are dealing with nuclear catastrophe turn to plants and both use text and image, right, to kind of draw out and, and make sense of non-verbal testimony, right? Um, these are kind of, you know, the 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 very abstract um ideas that I'm 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 trying to work through in in this essay. Um, but as far as like what why Kibakuju are important, right? Um, and this is something that again, I think Martyr sort of gets at very uh lucidly and, and kind of clearly in in his book. Sugihara's is a bit more, you kind of have to read it critically to to get to this point right but there's something about plants trees right um and about um the way that plants are open exposed to the environment right take in the environment are are porous right to the elements in a way that humans don't conventionally think of ourselves something about nuclear radiation really kind of undoes um, that way of thinking about the human, right? We we don't have the ability to stop radiation at our skin, right? At the, the sort of boundary of the human body. And so 
you know, there is this, this way to kind of rethink exposure to nuclear radiation through a kind of botanical logic, right? This is something Martyr writes in that book, right? Um, in response to uh, the Chernobyl meltdown, you know, we were all plants then, right? And so there's a way to kind of understand that in a passive way, right? Well, we're, we're, we're doomed. We can't, stop it right where we're just porous to this radiation but then what if we you know kind of phytomorphically again try to embody something of the the agency and 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 you know uh active qualities of plant life and actually you know do something with with that receptivity to the environment right um how how does a knowledge of that porousness change our politics right change um the way we think about nuclear war right nuclear energy um so again you know all of that is 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 sort of what i'm 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 kind of chasing in this article and it's again a bit more of a um yeah a theoretical piece than i think some of my other work just sort of the nature of the the issue and the um the journal uh, sort of allowed for a bit more of that theoretical um, experimentation. So I'm grateful for that. And it's it's a piece I, I really uh, am, again, proud of, and I'm happy it's out there in the world. So. Kind of switching tracks, something that I like to ask most or all of our interviewees, um, do you have a favorite plant? And if so, what is it? So as a listener of the podcast, I've, I've been anticipating this question <laughs> for a while and and it's not an easy question, right? Um, I have so many favorite plants, but if I'm being honest and uh, if I'm if I'm being seasonal, <laughs> my mind right now is really sort of focused on um, the passion fruit vine that I have on my patio. I've had this vine for several years now. Um, you know, I've watched it grow. I've sort of, depending how we think about it, you know, been, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in a kind of conspiracy with it, helping it grow. Um, passion fruit is a fruit that I, I love. I'm kind of obsessed with. Um, I eat it every chance I get. I love the flowers. I find them to be um, really abstract uh, in the way that they look. They have this sort of strange angular quality to them. The colors are very striking. Um, the scent is just intoxicating. Um, I had two op two flowers open up uh, yesterday, and and one of them I just couldn't believe how my entire patio was just enveloped in the fragrance, um, quite like I've never smelled it before. Um, but they only last, you know, a couple hours, really. They open up in the afternoon, next morning, they're they're closed. So, you know, when you study Japan, and you study plants, everybody wants to talk to you about cherry trees, about the transience of the cherry blossoms. And, you know, all of that's sort of there um, in the Japanese tradition aesthetic tradition but i feel like passion fruit has something very similar right just that that brief moment of flowering um but so so there's that side of it um i have to say 
my sort of relationship and, and thinking with that passion fruit vine was really important for the book project as well. One of the things that I, I um, talk about uh, in the book, and I, I kind of trace this through different writers in Japan, is the way that um, certain Japanese intellectuals really thought of, mm, you know, political anarchy, communism, different modes of sociality, of, of mutual aid, right? Plant life became a way for them to, to kind of think through these ideas. And so as I was kind of trying to tease out, okay, what are these writers thinking about um, really like in the midst of war, right? Thinking about networks of, of mutual aid. Uh, I was looking at at my my passion fruit and how the vines which are all attached right to a, a root stock, but but go all over the place and come back together and support each other and wrap each other up. And, you know, it, it was this idea of like the singularity as multiplicity as singularity sort of embodied in this vine um, in, in a very active, you know, perpetually growing and way um, that was that really helped me understand what some of these writers were were trying to envision at the same time, right? Going back to anarchist thinkers like Kropotkin, right, who who writes mutual aid, this text, and and really turns to the botanical world to to think through these ideas. So, um, I got a little uh, <laughs> theoretical, but. I do really just also like the fruit. I, I I will eat passion fruit all the time. So I think I think that has to be my answer. Yeah. In working with plants, although you're primarily working with text, but again in critical plant studies, like it's it's kind of like you are interacting with the plants too. It's it's just really multimodal. Um yeah. How do you see the goal of your work? What do the plants do and what do you do? Yeah, um, it's such a great question. Again, um, I think there's a there's there's several different goals. One of them is a bit more specific um, to my immediate discipline, right? So Plants really have been working with plants, thinking about plants, writing about plants, thinking about thinkers who think about plants, um, has been a way to, as I mentioned earlier, sort of break out of the more traditional conservative side of area studies. Um, you know, they they plants can really help us rethink and hopefully, you know, kind of break apart or at least relativize notions of the canon right within within Japanese literature for sure um you know the plants are are kind of entry point into a different configuration of of a tradition right literary filmic intellectual um you know but but they so so it can kind of yeah remap the way um artists and scientists communicated with each other and engaged with each other's ideas but I, but I also think it. So it only it allows for us to research that, but also to embody that, right? So I think, you know, I, I talk to some of my colleagues who, um, you know, write more about Japanese literature, sort of qua literature, 
And, you know, they don't have the kind of opportunities, these, these really exciting opportunities I've been given, like, like being on this podcast, for example, right, to be able to talk to um, an audience that really doesn't know anything about Japanese literature, might not really care, you know, all that much, but plants become this sort of entry point for them as well, right? For for, for speaking across di disciplines, speaking across, um, you know, this line between the humanities and STEM, for example. I was really fortunate um, last month to participate in a two-week virtual residency in plant humanities at um, Dumbarton Oaks. It was virtual, but it was just such a, a an amazing experience to be able to sit down with folks of you know these these scholars from from across the humanities the sciences our work was all very different but we had plants in common and and we could find points of connection potential avenues for collaboration right i i feel like especially right now you know the humanities is just in such a um state of uh, panic and anxiety about our relevance and environmental humanities, plant studies, all of this to me is just so exciting. There's so much promise. And, you know, I'm having so many of just, just really exciting conversations with people that I think just personally speaking, working with plants alleviates a lot of that anxiety and, and allows for a, um, I don't know, just a, a real dedication to, to what I do. Um, a little bit, you know, thinking more broadly, um, I think there's an ethical uh, goal as well. You know, um, anytime you're really focusing on plant life, uh, especially thinking about the agency of plant life, thinking about how we might bridge some of the, you know, perceived differences between humans and plants. I mean, th these are all efforts to dismantle certain anthropocentric notions of human superiority, right? And of course, that has all kinds of impl implications for our relationships with the more than human world, um, for how we think about and deal with, uh, you know, climate change, um, you know, all of these kinds of things. Um, so, there, there's that element to it, but but even more so, just a greater um, sort of ethical claim about alterity, right, and difference and otherness. One of the things that I, I really try to stress when I'm explaining my work um, to people who might not really understand why I'm interested in plants or what's so new about plants, right, um, there's a way that when I tell people oh, I work on plants in Japan, they just imagine the most sort of conservative scholarship <laughs> that they can, right? That this is just a retreat from any kind of questions of the social, the historical, right? Um, but it's so far from the truth. And that's, that's to me, the real promise and excitement about plant humanities and critical plant studies is this focus on plants is not a retreat from questions of social justice, right? Or environmental justice. You know, these are, these are, it's a way in, it's a way to think differently and new about these questions, right? Questions of race, of gender. Um, plants give us a way to, to really engage with it. And I see this so much in my teaching, you know, when I'm working with students who 
sometimes don't feel comfortable um, discussing gender in our current climate, right? Plants allow them to to engage with these questions and and really think about them in a theoretical way that I think uh, just creates a great opportunity. One of the things that the networking with plants in the Anthropocene as a group is kind of like really interested in, um, besides education, which you mm-hmm. mentioned, um, is respect for plants and making sense of kind of like what it means to have respect for plants. So yeah. perhaps picking up part of the ethical um, concerns that you included um, in your last answer. Um, but does your work deal with, or do you as a researcher and scholar deal with like what it means to have respect for plants and how that's embodied in your work? Yeah, I think even if I don't necessarily use the term respect, right? Um, I do like to, I mean, you know, I, I like to think that that is a part of what I'm doing. You know, I, I, I've been talking all about how, you know, I'm, I'm interested in the way people think about plants and understand plants and what does it mean for humans to want to be more plant-like, to try to embody that. Um, I think a lot of that does come down to respect and especially this idea of respecting alterity, right? I'm I'm, I'm fascinated by how different thinkers try to, you know, get to the bottom of plants. What's happening in, in the botanical realm? What are, what are plants doing? What are they thinking, right? Um, you know, one of the figures that I uh, look at in the book project is a, a pseudoscientist, um, someone whose, you know, work I don't believe, <laughs> right? I mean, this is, this is someone, Hashimoto Ken, who certain listeners might know if they've dared to read The Secret Life of Plants, right? This sort of infamous work of, of botanical pseudoscience that people like, um, you know, well, Michael Pollan has a really interesting, you know, writing about it. But but it's, you know, this, this kind of, uh, you know, debunked pseudoscience that a lot of contemporary scientists who are working in things like plant communication have had to kind of work against. Um, what I like to say is, well, in the plant humanities, we don't have to worry about that so much. I can I can kind of look at his this guy's writings and think about what he's doing without having to say it's true, right? But in any case, you know, I, I this this question of alterity of of the sort of boundaries of of what we're able to know about plant life, right? And respecting that boundary, right? Respecting that alterity, I think. That's where art comes in for me. Um, these figures that I'm looking at in my work, you know, they they don't necessarily have it all figured out. They're not able to directly communicate with plants, contrary to what they might think, right? But there's something about that striving towards it, that attempt to do so, right? That um, creates art, right? Creates a kind of uh, literary poetic affect <clears throat> affect that I'm I'm chasing um, in the work I look at. But I do think there is, you know, a certain level of of respecting 
the limits of our knowledge, right? Um, which isn't to say that we shouldn't ever strive towards a better understanding of of plants as as you know beings with agency um, and and certainly ones that that affect our lives very directly. But you know, I think another way into this question for me is um, just to bring it back briefly to the the work I translated um, Ito Hiromi's Tree Spirits Grass Spirits because she writes quite a bit from this sort of ethical place about this question of invasive, naturalized, or native species of plants, right? To me, this is all about, you know, degrees of respect. Um, this is this is a huge sort of conversation in plant humanities, um, you know, that, that Indigenous scholars have taken up, um, someone like, like, uh, Ito writes about in 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 her her artistic work, right? Um, you know, Ito as uh, someone who immigrated into the U.S., right? She writes about you know, again. This is here in Southern California. Um, you know, she's writing as an immigrant into San Diego, looking at the ice plant, right? This ice plant, which is a highly invasive species throughout California. Um, to the extent that often there will be these community events of, of uprooting ice plant, right? People get together and they they uproot all the ice plant. And so uh, Ito writes about, you know, looking at all of these, these corpses, as she calls them, the corpses of the ice plant and knowing they're invasive, but knowing she herself, right, has is is not native to, to California and feeling a certain degree of sympathy for the plant, but recognizing that that's probably not the right way to go, right? So that those sort of questions and um you know the 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 struggle to to make sense of that about what plants do we let live and what what plants do do we let die or or kill in a given environment um you know these are profoundly ethical environmental questions and they're the kind of questions that you know, I myself, as someone who who doesn't have as deep a knowledge of of of, of the science of it, um, can't really decide, right? But I think there is, um, you know, in in an attempt to listen to the scientific side of things alongside the literary side of things, right? There is a kind of respectful attitude. I like to think in that. Right uh, of of not foreclosing any one way of knowledge, but also sort of recognizing, yeah, the, again, the limits of 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 what we can truly know about plant life. I'm not sure if that gets to the question or not, but uh, yeah, I think it is really it is interesting. I think sometimes the plant humanities can give us the space to mm -hmm. try and understand things in a different way where solutions to important problems like climate change or invasive species or other things like there's this space that the humanities can say okay here are some of the you know scientific views and here are some of the like maybe scientific solutions or answers to some of these problems but the humanities can help us make sense of like what some of our values are and how it's right. connected to these other things that we value and find you know cultural connections with so right to try right. and like 
don't know, I guess as an ethicist, muddy the waters with the hope that will clarify our thinking. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you gotta, but, gotta yeah. jump into the muddy water first. But yeah. but I but I think that's it, right? It's 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 there is a respectful attitude towards plant life in our attempts to be collaborative in our work, right? In our research and um to not assume that any one of us knows, right? That I think there's something to be learned from the way plants cooperate, right? That we sort of need to cooperate as well in our thinking about plants in order to yeah, ask some of these, these difficult questions. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, do you have any projects? I know you have quite a few actually forthcoming projects that you want to make sure are included in the show, in the show notes. And for um, listeners that might be interested in following your work. Yeah, so um, again, I've mentioned it a few times now, but um, Tree Spirits, Grass Spirits is the translation. Um, Hiromi Ito is the writer. That's coming out via Nightbook books um the the article on uh the hibakuju hiroshima chernobyl um that's out in angelaki is the name of the journal there um the marimo stuff was coming out in a, a volume through brill's critical plant studies series you can look up that website and see that um again i don't quite know when that's coming out um yeah eventually my my first monograph <laughs> will come out hopefully sooner rather than later uh, you know, in the process of being peer reviewed as we speak. So, you know, hopefully within the next year or so, um, the tentative title of that is Becoming Botanical, Rethinking the Human Through Plant Life in Modern Japan. That might change, uh, but that's sort of the working title there. Um, some other stuff I'm, I'm, I'm working on, um, I am hoping, so I, I, I just agreed to write a chapter on um, the Jomonsugi, which is this very famous tree on the island of Yakushima in, in southern Japan. If you've seen Princess Mononoke um, before, that's Yakushima. It's based on that, right? So, so these kind of primeval forests, there's this one specific tree that people will tell you is 6,000 years old, right? Um, that's debated. But in any case, uh, there's a, a volume uh, that is on large old trees is the sort of the, the thematic of, of the, the volume. It's going to be scientists as well as some of us from the humanities that are coming together to think about all the different ways of understanding large old trees. And so I'm writing something about, um, you know, literary uh, takes on this 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 one specific tree. So that that's a piece I'm working on this summer. And yeah, I don't know. I've got all kinds of stuff coming out. Uh, you can always, you know, follow me on on Twitter. I'm going to continue calling it Twitter. Uh, and you can check my faculty page and all that to, to keep updated if you're interested. But yeah, I just want to thank you again. It's just always such a pleasure um, to to talk about this this work and um yeah i just want to thank you again for all the amazing work you're doing with the podcast and with the network in general so thank you so much well thank you and hopefully um maybe closer to the time when your monograph is released um we can have you back and you can talk more about that um 
as it becomes more kind of closer to being released out into the world. So yeah, I would love that. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, thank you again for joining us on the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene podcast. If you're interested in our group, please visit networkingwithplants.org. If you'd like to reach out, please feel free to email us at networkingwithplants at gmail.com. Till next time, have a great week month. We'll see. (laughs) Enjoy the end of the summer. Take good care. music piece is kindly offered to us by artist Mylise. Mylise is a sonic artist, immersive ecology designer, and clean energy ambassador. Merging art and technology, she creates music experiences that express the voices of plants and the other inhabitants of the earth.